What brand of coffee do you drink? Hansa. Where do you get your groceries? Village Market. Trader Joe's. When you go into your grocery store of choice and you go to the aisle with all the beverages and you look at all the varieties of the sodas and the sparkling water and you skip this brand in order to choose that brand and that flavor, why? There is a lot of money being spent on that question. How do we get this consumer to buy our product and to keep buying it? And as we who buy stuff have gotten more savvy about advertising, the folks who want us to buy stuff have had to step up to the plate and get even more creative. Enter the realm of lifestyle marketing. As one marketing agency puts it on their website, in today's cluttered advertising landscape, traditional methods no longer cut through the noise. Consumers have grown weary of empty promises and fabricated claims. That's where we come in. At our agency, we understand that true success lies in forging authentic relationships between businesses and customers. We believe in capturing hearts and minds, not just making a quick sale. And they do that by teaching businesses to sell stuff by selling lifestyles. If you're on Instagram at all, you will see influencers who have their brands. Their brand is a lifestyle. They want to sell you not just a product, but a way of life. If you buy these products, you can be like me and look how beautiful my life is. Doesn't it look great? It's a compelling story, actually. There's a reason that advertisers are using this. Every time we open our phones or go into a store, we're being beckoned into a story. A story that promises beauty and fulfillment and satisfaction and meaning all through the stuff we can buy and craft into a lifestyle all our own. There's just one problem. That story isn't true. It's not true. It's compelling. It draws on our deeply human need for a beautiful life, but you can't get a beautiful life even through beautiful stuff. Last week in Matthew, we heard Peter proclaim, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And in his sermon, Scott emphasized to us that that confession isn't just an accurate statement. Jesus is Messiah. To say that Jesus is Messiah implicates Peter in a whole way of life, a lifestyle. And the same is true for us. When we say Jesus is Messiah, we are implicated in a lifestyle, a way of life. It's beautiful. It will fulfill us beyond what any marketer can deliver. But it's not one you will find on Instagram. What is this lifestyle that leads to life? What sort of lifestyle must a disciple of Jesus embrace in order to find life more abundant and free? First, to be Jesus' disciples, we must embrace a way of life that radically reshapes our loyalties. Peter makes his confession. Jesus gives Peter the keys to the kingdom, the power of binding and loosing, the authority to interpret the kingdom and Jesus' own teachings, to say what's in and what's out, and therefore who's in and who's out. That's a lot of power. And Peter, given all that power, immediately gets it wrong. And that's why Jesus rebukes them so strongly. What we teach about Jesus 
what I teach up here, it really matters. Beware, preachers. Peter has not yet had his loyalties reshaped. Jesus says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God. You're not thinking about God, but merely human concerns. Deny yourself, Peter, and follow me. Now, deny yourself. There's a lot of misconceptions about what this means, I think. Sometimes Christians have thought it means do not have fun. Do not do anything enjoyable. I think about the character that Alfred Molina plays in the movie Chocolat, which is apparently an old movie by now. <laughs> He's a mayor of a small and very pious French town who strenuously practices his Lenten fasts. There's a scene where he's just kind of, he has like a bread crust and some water and he's, oh, I can't eat it. He denies himself of every physical pleasure. He's convinced that the new and attractive chocolate maker in town will lead the entire village to turn away from God through chocolate. Christians sometimes have that reputation of being joyless and dour prudes. Now, certainly self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. But Jesus also knew how to enjoy himself. He was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. You don't get that by not enjoying some food and drink sometimes. So that sort of asceticism must not be the primary meaning of deny yourself here. So it's not that. Sometimes Christians hear Jesus' words, deny yourself, to mean erase yourself. Erase your needs, push them down. Erase your feelings, push them down. Erase what you want. Be totally centered around what other people want and need and feel. We sometimes equate self with selfishness. When I was an undergrad, I've mentioned this before, I had a period where I was quite depressed and my prayer during that time in my misguided way was cross out my I, capital letter I, cross out my I, get rid of me. And I think sometimes we think that's what this means. Now again, scripture clearly asks us to think of others, right? We see this in Romans 12 that we read today. Honor one another above yourselves. Philippians 2, consider not only your own interests, but also the interests of others. But God made your I too. There has been a lot in the news and books published and all that about folks with narcissistic tendencies. And we often think of folks with those tendencies as folks who love themselves too much, who have too much self, so no room to know and love others. But the research shows us, psychologists tell us that actually narcissism is really a lack of self, an absence of self, something missing, an unawareness of self and equating oneself with the image that you want others to see, only wanting to see that image. So when anything threatens it, it feels like an existential threat it turns out that an absence of self does not lead us to be more selfless, but more selfish. We are to love others, but we love others most fully not from a place of absence, not from a place of no self, but a place of whole self. God does not want to get rid of your I. He wants to make it whole so that you can be a self that is loved first by God, than by ourselves too. And it is that that enables us to most fully love others. 
So when Jesus says deny yourself, he does not mean get rid of the things that make you you. He has something else in mind. One of the commentators I read this week reminded me that when Jesus says these words, folks hearing him did not think of themselves as isolated individuals the way we often do in our culture. They thought in terms of the we. We Jews versus you Romans. We Jews versus you Samaritans. We, the family of Peter from the tribe of, I don't know. Do you know? What tribe was Peter from? Okay. He was from a tribe. The we mattered. I probably should have looked that up before I put it in the sermon. <laughs> Mental note. So they thought in terms of the we, and they thought in terms of honor and shame. When I do something shameful, it brings shame on the whole family and vice versa. If my family is shamed, I am shamed. So Peter's been arguing with Jesus because Jesus is talking about doing something that would bring Jesus shame and thus shame to his disciples. Jesus, don't bring us shame. Jesus rebukes Peter because Peter's loyalty and his values are no longer to be predominantly shaped by his culture or his group or his family or his tribe. Those things don't go away. They still shape Peter, but that's no longer his primary loyalty. Jesus is. When Jesus says, you must deny yourselves and follow me, he's saying, I'm your group now, me and the others who are with me. Your loyalty is to me now. In Matthew 10, the other place in Matthew where Jesus talks about our need to take up the cross and follow him, this connection with loyalty is even more explicit. Matthew 10 says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So in other words, when the call of family and the call of Jesus conflict, the disciple must choose Jesus. Who and what has our ultimate love and our loyalty? What group pulls at us for our love and devotion? Because we might think of ourselves as isolated individuals, but there's also a lot of groups happening in our country, groups with a strong pull on our love, our loyalty, our identity. Are we willing to lay all of that down, all of our loves, all of our loyalties, anything that competes with our love and loyalty to Jesus? To be a disciple of Jesus, we must answer yes and say it again and again. Jesus asks us to embrace a way of life that radically reshapes our loyalties. Second, to be Jesus' disciples, we must embrace a way of life that demands our costly participation. Take up your cross and follow me. We hear that as a metaphor. And for us, it is. There's no crucifixions happening that I know of. The disciples would have heard it as an allusion to real life. They might actually have seen criminals paraded through the streets. Remember, the way it worked that when someone was crucified was that on the hill outside the city, Jerusalem, the vertical piece of the cross was already in place. And the one condemned to die, again, this was a low-status person, they had to carry the other piece of it, the horizontal piece, on their backs through the city in view of everyone with no clothes on. This was a public shaming. You're being mocked. I can imagine they were throwing figs at you, marching yourself to your own death while carrying on you the thing on which you would die. This was not an abstract thing, certainly not for Jesus. 
for us, taking up our cross means, implies first that we have to do something. There's something to pick up. Discipleship is not a spectator sport. I got, <laughs> this is a funny statement. I got the giggles reading a commentary this week. <laughs> Rodney Reeves writes, Jesus would have no cheerleaders. Disciples who would try to encourage him from the sidelines as they watched him die for their sins. We're praying for you, Jesus. Lord God, help Jesus carry his cross. God, give him the strength to die for our sins. That's not what discipleship is. We don't just watch Jesus. We don't just think about the cross or say, hey, that was great. We're done. We have to pick up our cross and participate. This is one of the downsides of screens and live stream worship. There's big pluses and there's some downsides too. The pluses are they can enable you at home to join us here. Maybe you can't leave your home. Maybe you're sick and you just need to join that way. It allows people to find God's comfort no matter where we are in the world when they need it. These are good things, but worshiping through a screen can work against discipleship if we're not careful because it can make it seem like worship and discipleship are just something you watch, spectator sports. A screen is a passive thing. Discipleship is not. A screen is an isolated thing. You can take your device with you and watch in a different place in a different time. It is hard to live out Romans 12 through a screen. So again, I know people join at home. I have, you have, for lots of different reasons. There's no judgment there. But I want us to be aware of the potential side effects that worshiping through a screen can produce so we can counteract them when we notice them. Taking up your cross, it means participation. And it also means that participation will cost us something because there's only one reason to take up a cross. What might it cost us to follow Jesus? It might cost us friends and family members. It might cost us reputation and status, the good opinion of others. It might mean experiencing shame and rejection the way Jesus did, carrying that cross through the city. It might mean actually dying for Jesus' sake. It will most certainly mean the type of pain and struggle it takes to grow into holiness or to try to live out Romans 12 in an actual community because that's hard work at the best of times. Forgiveness costs something. Refusing revenge costs something. Blessing those persecuting us instead of responding in kind costs something. Jesus is clear, following him might actually mean more pain for his sake, not less. It's normal for us to avoid pain because that's part of why God made our bodies to experience pain, to give us a warning, don't touch the stove, it hurts. But as one commentator puts it, the cost of avoiding suffering could be the loss of one's soul if avoidance is achieved by forsaking Jesus. There is no growth without pain. Sometimes when we follow Jesus, it feels like we are walking toward death itself. That is the very time we are walking towards life. A disciple of Jesus must embrace a lifestyle of costly participation. And third, to be Jesus' disciples, we must embrace a way of life that seeks to overcome evil with good. 
Raquel St. Clair, a scholar and minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, tells a story about an early ministry experience that she has. She was a youth minister in an urban context in what she describes as a liberal Presbyterian church pastored by a white liberal feminist woman. Most of the congregation members were black and most of the church leaders were not. Well, one Sunday at a routine meeting after church, the pastor got a question from the pews. An African-American parishioner asked the pastor why some of his favorite hymns were missing from the church's hymn book. In particular, one of his favorites, the Old Rugged Cross. Well, it turns out that the hymnal they used was simply a collection of hymns the pastor had photocopied and arranged into a book for the church. So there were some hymns she didn't know, and so she left them out. There were others that she left out on purpose, including the Old Rugged Cross. When they asked her why, she said she refused to use songs that mentioned blood or the cross because they glorified the suffering of Jesus. Raquel St. Clair asked her, why? Why leave those out? Well, the pastor did not want the people that she was ministering to, particularly the ones among them who were poor or sick or incarcerated or uneducated or addicted, she didn't want them to believe that their suffering was God's will and that they simply had to treat their circumstances, as the saying goes, as their cross to bear. Now, St. Clair recognizes that this pastor had good intentions because there have been too many times in church history where Christians have misused the scriptures to excuse evil, to excuse oppression, or to say to those who suffer that God has ordained their suffering so they shouldn't complain. We see this sometimes in cases of domestic violence where well-meaning folks say, you know, go back to your husband and submit. Just bear up. Be cheerful and he'll come to know the Lord. God must be trying to teach you something. We see it in the institution of slavery. God ordained this so we could take care of people who can't take care of themselves. Slaves, obey your masters. In other words, we interpret that to mean it is God's will that you be enslaved. That's why I love that our lectionary gives us Exodus 3 today, too. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out. I am concerned about their suffering. I have come down to rescue them and to bring them up out of that land. God does not ordain evil. He does not ordain oppression or violence or the suffering that can be so dehumanizing. Jesus came to set the captives free in every way. So in taking up our cross, in following Jesus, in denying ourselves, Jesus asks us for this not so that we can submit to evil more cheerfully, more gracefully, but so that through us, Jesus might continue his ministry of overcoming evil with good. The cross is good. Good Friday is good, not because suffering in the abstract is redemptive, but because through the cross, death was defeated. Evil was defeated. Abuse and oppression and darkness and every power that would degrade and destroy life, it was turned on its head, not by fighting it with more evil, more violence, but through the deep goodness and the love of the Lord. A cross-shaped life does not enable or tolerate evil. Heaven forbid. It seeks to overcome evil with good. Because here's the thing. 
God will not put up with evil forever. Sometimes he removes an evildoer from power as he did with Pharaoh. Sometimes he turns a persecutor from an enemy into a friend as he does with Paul. Sometimes folks get to evil their way through life only to end up before Jesus on judgment day. And that's why blessing our enemies sometimes means not letting them continue to do evil things. They will face Jesus, as will we. Jesus' disciples are those who live a lifestyle that seeks to overcome evil with good. This lifestyle, reshaped loyalties, costly participation, overcoming evil with good, it might feel as out of reach as the lifestyles we see on Instagram. But don't worry, because the lifestyle of a disciple is not a carefully curated social media feed. It is one big mess. It is an improv class, taught by the Holy Spirit, where we learn as we go, we make mistakes, we try again, We are never as good as the master. But sometimes we realize we've gotten a bit better. And sometimes there are beautiful moments that take your breath away. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.